you would open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5, the second half of verse 5, and then verses 6 and 7. What I'd like to do to begin is read from verse 4 down through verse 10. Verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. In them. To pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words. Inspired of you, we pray now that you would open them to our understanding. We ask it for your glory, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his name. Amen. So last week we looked at one of the great verses in all of our Bible. The intervening of the mercy of God because of his love. Unless we forget the first three verses, let me read them again quickly as well. Because these first three verses tell us what the Lord has saved us from. What he has saved us out of. What he has emancipated us from. The tyranny That he has overcome. Verse 1 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then we are introduced to the fourth verse in great contrast to what we have done for ourselves in in being entangled in sin. The contrast is what God has done to get us out. The great work that he has performed because he's merciful, because of his great love, where he has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. Last week we looked at the fourth verse and we looked at the rich mercy and great love of God. This week we're going to look at three things that Paul says here that God has done for us together with Christ. And let me just say at the beginning, 
There is no blessing or blessings that can come to you or to me apart from Jesus Christ. There is no spiritual blessing that is not yours or mine through Jesus Christ. We cannot have the Father without the Son. We are not deists. Deism is the belief that there is a higher being, a higher power, and then it ends there. Christianity is the believing that there is a great, mighty, almighty creating God, and his works can be seen in what he has made. But then the scriptures also tell us that this God has made himself known in Jesus Christ by his spirit, and that if we would have him, we would have Christ. And so you'll see these three things. Paul is, is careful to say to us that these great spiritual blessings have come to us together with Christ. Those three, those three things are, he has made us alive together with Christ. We have to keep all of those words together. We can't just say, he has made us alive. And leave Christ out of the equation. But then secondly, he says in the sixth verse, he has raised us up together. And then thirdly, has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then there is a purpose statement of sorts given in the seventh verse. And it answers the question, at least in part. Why did God do this? Why has he been so filled with mercy? Why is his love so great that he would do these three things? Give life, resurrection life, and the sense of being seated with Christ to those who are described in the first three verses. Why would he do it? Why has he done it? Well, verse 7 is going to give us that answer, and we'll get there in time. But, but first, again, please hear, God has nothing for you that does not come through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, he has given us all things in and through Jesus Christ. That's both the negative and the positive way of stating the same thing. God has nothing for you that does not come through Jesus Christ. If you would have all of the benefits of salvation, they will only come to you through your bowing the knee in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing your sins to this great Savior and turning from your sins to this great Savior. If you would have all of these blessings, then you will have him. And before we get involved in these three things, let me give you a couple of words here from Ian Hamilton. I quoted him last week. I'm going to do it again here. He says, it is the wonder of the gospel that judgment deserving sinners are made the objects of God's almighty mercy and love. And the wonder of wonders is not that God is pleased to save some and not others. No, the greatest wonder is that he is pleased to save any at all. Isn't that the greatest sense of all that you have, is that God, in his great, rich mercy and great love, 
has saved you? You know, I, I often say to myself and to you all, I know me better than anyone. You know you better than anyone. And when you contemplate not only the acts that you've done, the thoughts that pass through your mind, and yet in, the, in light of both of those, the rich mercy and great love of God has come to you, has found you in your sin, has called you out by name, has applied the blood of Christ to you, and caused you to see all of the glory that he is. Isn't that cause enough for just great humbling before God and great thanksgiving and gratitude for him? We didn't get ourselves out of the first three verses of Ephesians 2. He did. And let's see how he did it. The main verb of this entire paragraph is found in verse 5. And it's these words, it's a compound verb, so it's all of these words together. Made us alive together with Christ. He has made us alive together with him. This really speaks, and it's the beginning of in, in the book of Ephesians, where Paul begins to teach about being united to Christ through faith. That's really the point and the, the main central teaching of verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 are probably the best known verses of this entire book. I remember being able to quote these verses early on because I had a Sunday school teacher that taught them to me and even required that I learn them. But how they've stuck in my mind and heart through all of these years, it is by grace we have been saved through faith. That is the way union with Christ comes. And so let me speak just a minute of what is union with Jesus Christ. And then secondly, try to answer the question, how does this union take place? In this specific context, when Paul is saying God in rich mercy and great love, even when you were dead in sin, has done this for you, this for you, and this for you together with Christ. It means, in essence, that what has happened to Jesus Christ has happened to me. If I am found in him through faith, what has happened to him has happened to me. He was raised from the dead. In him, I am raised from spiritual death. God, his father, gave him life. God, my Father, through him, gave me life. He has been seated at the right hand of God. I, too, in Christ, through union with him, have been seated with Christ. And we did this last week, but I think it's important to do it again. If you go back to where Paul began in the fourth verse, or excuse me, the third verse of the first chapter, he speaks about, how God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then these three activities of making alive, resurrecting, and seating us with Christ really begin to unfold what all of this means. So that's in the specific context of what union with Christ means. But in a far broader sense, 
It means this, not only what happens to Christ has happened to me through my union with him. Think of it this way. The father who is righteous and holy no longer deals with me as me. Aren't you thankful for that truth? He no longer deals with me as simply being me. Alone. He deals with me as I am found in relation to Jesus Christ. That's what this whole idea of what the scripture teaches of substitutionary atonement. Christ being our substitute, making atonement for our sin, having the only payment of the shedding of his blood that a holy and righteous God would accept. He stood in our place. That's the essence of the gospel. If your question is, what is this gospel of Jesus Christ anyway? It's simply that. He standing and absorbing the wrath of God in your stead as your substitute. And then now on the other side of the cross, we look back and we understand the great blessing, spiritual blessing of being in union with Christ. This holy God no longer looks at me and deals with me accordingly. I'm no longer a child, a child of wrath like the others, which is, which is where the third verse ends. He no longer deals with me as me. He deals with me as being in relation to Christ. He treats me and he treats you like his own son and his own daughter. Christ has taken us to be his own. Think of all of the activity of Christ before the throne of God on your behalf now that you're in union with him. He intercedes for you. He prays for you. He speaks to God on your behalf. This work of his, this office of his, we refer to as his high priestly office and intercession. This is what he is even now in heaven as he sits at the Father's right hand doing on behalf of those who through faith have become united to him. The fearful thing about this is that if you are not, if you are not found in Christ, a holy and righteous God will deal with you as you. He will deal with you according to your sins in the end. But to keep thinking about what it means to be in union with Christ. Every blessing and benefit of grace received from the Father's hand is bestowed upon me as it was first bestowed upon Jesus Christ. Jesus is the first and primary recipient of all of these spiritual blessings. And then we as being in that train of many sons, he is leading to glory. Those blessings, as it were, overflow to us. And we received them. And isn't this what Paul spoke of in another verse that we know well, Galatians 2.20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think we could understand that as one of Paul's ways of trying to flesh out what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
It's Christ living in me. Before God, I now appear no longer as one dead in transgressions and sins. No longer as one walking according to the course of the world. No longer as one under the tyranny of the prince of the power of the air. But now... I have been received into the family of God through Christ, adopted as one of his own children. Paul says at the end of that verse, he loved me and gave himself for me. You see how personal he makes this. It can be this personal for you. You can say, if you have come to faith in Christ, with all sincerity and with all truth that he has loved you and gave himself for you. The second part of this that I want to answer is how does this union take place? Lord willing, we all see the possibility of this union no longer having God deal with us in our sin alone. To face the fierceness of the wrath of a holy God alone. To be left to bear the brunt of his wrath alone. But to have Christ stand in my place, being the one mediator between God and man. How does this union come about? How does it take place? There's only one answer to that question. The question being, how can you be united to the Son of God? It's by faith. It's no wonder then that Paul, right after these truths, goes directly into some of the greatest verses in all the Bible of salvation by grace through faith. And notice, even here, before he gets to verse 8, he places, and this is Paul's doing, this is not some invention of Bible translators He places in parenthesis, before he ever gets to verse 8, back up in the 6th verse. It's just like he can't wait to make this truth known. For by grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8 he enlarges on that theme and says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And then the rest of the scriptures bears this out. The writer of Hebrews would tell us without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why is that? Because God is only pleased with the work of his son. You think about the times in the gospels where the voice of God was heard from heaven. What does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The glory of the gospel and the glory of union with Christ by faith is that now it can be rightly said of you and me that we are the beloved of God in whom he is well pleased. So let's look more closely at these three things that Paul details for us. The first again being in verse 5. That he has made us alive together with Christ. Can we just take these words at face value? If we just look at the first word, 
in our English translations, made us alive together. This is the work and activity of God. This is mercy that accords to his rich mercy. This is a result of the great love with which he loved us. And notice the detail, even when, even when we were dead in trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. There is a theological term that we could apply to this phrase, and that term is regeneration. The giving of life. When Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again, it would be right for us to think that Christ was there telling him, Nicodemus, you must experience regeneration. And you'll remember that went right over the head of the learned Pharisee, right? And he began to ask questions that were bound to this temporal realm. He had yet no real spiritual understanding. He asks, how can a person enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? But nonetheless, Jesus stood before him and said, you must be born again. You must be one of those who experienced the new birth or regeneration. And let me read you a few sentences here from Charles Hodge that speaks about what it means to be made alive together with Christ. He says, understand aright the greatness of the change. And he's referring to the change from being dead in sin and all the detail and description given in the third verses in the first three verses to now the great change of being alive in Christ. He says, apprehend rightly the greatness of the change that has come now upon the regenerate of God. They are freed from the condemnation of the law. They are freed from the dominion and power and tyranny of Satan. They are freed from the lethargy and pollution of a spiritual death. Positively, they are now reconciled to God, implying that there is no more enmity between them. No longer being the enemy of God and one upon whom he has set his wrath that accords to their nature. They are made partakers of his spirit. They are granted everlasting or eternal life. Adopted into his family. Have all the rights and privileges now of being the sons of God. This is the change Paul refers to. And it is worthy of being expressed in this way. That he has quickened or made us alive together. With Christ. Think about all the things that we are now alive to. All of the things now that we can, by faith and through the help of the Spirit now indwelling us, understand about the greatness of our God. This is spiritual life. 
This is what it means to have, to have been regenerate. And let's try, if we can, to give even that word some definition. What, is it, what does regeneration mean? It's not just a theological word. It's found in the scriptures. It's found in, sec, excuse me, not second, but Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And there Paul writes to Titus, referring to salvation. He says, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? He answers the question through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So there those two things are set side by side as almost being exact, exactly the same thing. Regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So if you were to define this term, how would you do it? Well, let me let Joel Beakey define it for you. He says it is a supernatural rebirth into spiritual life. Regeneration is not a change in the substance of the human nature. It's not a change in the physical makeup of a person, nor is it merely a change in your feelings or your beliefs. It is not a change into sinless or moral perfection. Rather, regeneration is the initial gift of God to new spiritual life. And if you wanted to read a commentary on that word regeneration, what it means, if you want to read a commentary on what it means to be made alive together with Christ, there's no greater place than you can turn in Romans chapter 6. And just begin to read there what it means to have been immersed or baptized by faith into Christ, to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 details all of those great things about what it means to be regenerate. What it means now to have life where once there was only death. And notice this is the intervention of God. Into the blackness and darkness of sin. And into the deadness of my heart. He came by his spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Made me alive together with Christ. And then there's these next two. Raising us up together and making us sit together. I think if having made us alive together was the main point, then these two are sub points to it. This is further explanation of what it means to have been made alive together with Christ. The first being... He has raised us up together. Notice the past tense. That's the way Paul wrote it. That's the way the Spirit inspired it. Because that's the way it is seen from the perspective of God. All of these things that Paul is detailing for us are worded in the past tense. Like they've already happened. Because they have. 
we don't yet experience and know them fully. One day we will. You've heard of the already and not yet tension in the scriptures, right? This is another expression of one of those things that have already happened, but we do not yet fully recognize and realize them. The third or the second part of this is also the same. Not only have we been raised, he has made us, past tense, he has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally speaking, your position before God in Christ, you cannot go any higher than what Paul has described. Having been given life, raised to walk in the newness of that life, even having been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, God has bestowed it all. He's given it all. But practically speaking, in the realm of sanctification, we have a long way to go. The goal of sanctification really could be stated this way. To make your practice as, as, as made possible only by the grace and mercy and the help of the Spirit. To make your practice in life match your position in Christ. And there is obviously we could state in this life we'll never get there. But that should not quench the pursuit. Because it is a pursuit that we are exhorted to almost on every page of your New Testament. So this is the greatness of what God has done. He's made us alive, raised us up with Christ, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ... This is owing only to his rich mercy and his great love. And then if we were to ask the question, which verse 7 answers, why did he do it? Now this may only be a partial answer to that question, but it's an answer nonetheless. Why did he do this great thing? In reading verse 7, if you were to begin the sentence with the word so... You'll see that this is an answer to some type of hypothetical question in Paul's mind. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're going to start in the middle toward the end of this verse before we go anywhere else. And just notice the word kindness. Everything that Paul has described, the black darkness of sin, the rich glory of Christ, and everything in between is owing only to the kindness of God. So that in part is an answer to the question, why? Because he is kind. Did we deserve it? No. Was he responding to any coercion of our own? No. 
merely according to the good pleasure of his will and his kindness. If you sit here this morning with the hope of Christ in your heart, knowing that these things apply to you because of your faith in Christ, then tears should well up in your eyes because of the kindness of God expressed to you. But there's a more full answer given in verse 7. In the first place that we'll deal with, the first words we'll deal with here are in the ages to come. What, what is Paul referring to? Well, we could get into a technical discussion of the, of the words, and, but we can make it real simple. In the future. That begins now and extends through all eternity. In the future, from now on, Paul is saying, in the ages to come, he might, the Father might, show. And this word, though it's simple in English, it's really a rich and full word. It means to place on, to place as an exhibit, to give a place of prominence. To fix everything around this exhibit to where all eyes are directed towards it. Perhaps you've been in some type of museum or some type of of display. And when you walk in, everything about the room, whether it be the colors, whatever it is, everything is directing your eye to the central object of the room. All of that is bound up in this little word, show. That in the ages to come, beginning now and going forward into the future, that the Father might show or exhibit the exceeding riches of His grace. So what is on display here? It's a couple of things, but really there's one central thing. I would like to say that the saved of God are on display here. As much as I agree with those who call believers and Christians trophies of the grace of God. I agree with that. We are trophies of the grace of God. And in this display cabinet, he has set each of those of us individually as his trophy of grace. I like the way that sounds in my ear. And there is a hint, an element of truth there. I'm not denying it at all. But that's not the primary thing that is on display Then what is? Paul says it this way. What is on display is the exceeding richness of the grace of God and his kindness. Here's here's a sinner. Take me, for example. Here's a sinner. Dead in sin. Unable to break free. Living life in my own mind to the full. Not wanting to come under the supposed tyranny of the law of God. Not wanting anyone to tell me how to live my life. Not wanting to be subject to the laws of God. Not wanting any commands of don't do, don't do, don't do raining down upon me. Lost in the darkness of night and glorying in it. 
under the deception of Satan telling me that all in the end is going to be well. That all of this Christianity and the religion of your parents and the religion of your family, it's all a hoax. It's all what the secular philosophers of past ages have called the crutch of Christianity. A a creation of the weakness of man needing something to place their hope and trust in. And here we are under that delusion. We looked at verses in the scripture where God has given great delusion or he has allowed the permission of Satan to transform himself into an angel of light and hold those who are dead in sin in some type of deluded state to where they think all is well. But yet enter the kindness and the exceeding riches and the rich mercy and the great love of God making us alive together with Christ. And then he takes that life, he takes my life and he takes yours. And all that once described it and now that which describes it. And he takes that trophy of his grace and he puts it in his display cabinet for all the world to see. And in verses like be salt of the earth, the light of the world would all apply to this. And here the trophies of God's grace sit. But the light that's shining upon them, the light that these trophies reflect, what gives these trophies of grace any luster at all is the light of the exceeding riches of God's grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's being magnified? What's being displayed? God's kindness to a sinful humanity in Christ. For all the world to see. He's taken you out of the miry clay and placed your feet up on the rock of Jesus Christ because He's kind. Because he's full of grace and mercy. What will you do with information like that? You really have a couple of options. Only two really. The first being that you will. I think for every person in the room. This would apply. That you would hear it again. You've heard it before. But that you would hear it again. And it would fall on your deaf ear. And would bounce off the scales on your spiritual eye. And walk out of here unaffected. Can I remind you of what Paul said just prior to these words? He refers to the children of wrath. So let me just in love. Remind you if you leave here from. This place, without Christ, you are a child of wrath. Then there's a second way you could respond to this news. And it would be to run to Jesus. 
to see God as having been so kind to allow you to hear the gospel once again. You didn't deserve to hear it again. You didn't earn another hearing. But God in his kindness and the richness of his grace and his great love has sounded it forth in your ears again. So my exhortation to you is to come to Christ. Same as last week. Whatever's standing in the way, step over it. Crawl over it. Crawl under it. Do anything you can by the help and mercy of God to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, my pride is too great. Christ can deal with your pride. You might say it will cost me too much. I have a reputation, you know. He can deal with that reputation. He knows what to do with it. Just one last thing. Speaking of these children of wrath, how would you answer this question? What has God saved you from? Probably most of us would have a ready reply. God has saved me from my sin. And that's right. But he's also saved you from himself. Outside of Christ, you're an object of his wrath. And when your life ends or Christ returns, he will pour that cup of wrath out on your head. But if you be found in Christ... Absolutely, amen, it's true. He has saved you from your sin. But even in a greater sense, he has saved you from himself. You're now no longer an object of wrath. You are an object of mercy. By grace, we are saved through faith. It's not a works lest any would boast. It it is the gift of God. And it's extended to you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the kindness of you, our God. We're thankful, Lord, that you have Related to us according to the exceeding riches of your grace and kindness. Lord, we are thankful that we, as being in Christ, are no longer objects of your wrath, but objects of mercy. Oh God, I pray that there would be none here that would refuse Christ and go out into this world. And ultimately die in their sin. And experience the full consequence of it. When there is such a great Savior. Such a great salvation to be had. Such hope. Such life. 
Father, we appeal to your mercy. We ask you, Lord, to save those who stand in need. Surprise them by what you will do in their life. Arrest them. Those who are not looking. Not looking for you, but found by you, nonetheless. We thank you for this Lord's Day and this opportunity to worship. Pray it's been well-pleasing in your sight. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.